Hey everyone, and welcome to the Power Within You podcast. My name is Mum Tagera, and as well as being your host, I also run my own leadership coaching, facilitation, and course creation business. The reason why I created this podcast was because through the coaching, I realized that everyone I was speaking to had or was suffering from mental health issues, whether it be burnout, stress, anxiety, depression, and more. But what I also realized was that these issues weren't being talked about openly. This podcast is just one step to make mental health accessible to everyone, to bring information to one place, to hear the personal stories of people who come from all walks of life and how they've overcome adversity. The power with a new podcast is to hear expert advice, gain resources, make mental health easier to understand and be able to implement positive changes. But most importantly, to know that you're not alone, to know there is support, understanding and love out there for you. I'm delighted to introduce my next guest, Daniel Ahern, to the Power With You podcast. Daniel founded Adjust in 2016 to help organisations start their neurodiversity conversation and provides organisations with clear, practical and positive neurodiversity training. I always tell people that I basically got into what I do completely by accident. When I was younger, I wanted to be a social worker and I spoke to a social worker and she said, the best way to get into social work would be to do some volunteering. And the very, very first piece of volunteering I ever did happened to be with an autistic boy back in the year 2000. And it also really shows how far we've come to from then because the idea of that volunteering was that we were aiming to cure the boy of his autism, which is obviously quite shocking in today's world. And I did an event the other night with a law organisation and it was about nurturing neurodivergent talent. And I thought it was so refreshing to see how far we'd come from from curing and not just placing but then nurturing so that's how I started I got so interested in autism difference of thought that my career took me that way so I never became a social worker I went to work at the National Autistic Society and I worked in a role where we helped autistic people into work and we helped autistic people at work and a big learning from that role was as individual as every autistic person was, every workplace was the same. So as individuals, each autistic person was I was supporting, every time I went to a workplace, I was saying the same stuff. So I was talking about their barriers in recruitment, the barriers around managers not having understanding around the topic, and there wasn't any policies around it, there was no culture around it. So I felt very early on in my career, I think I felt this for my whole life, I was like, why isn't everyone doing this? Why isn't everyone focusing on changing the workplace and not changing the autistic person? I still think the the emphasis is 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 slightly off, but lucky for me, that's sort of how I've made a living really, just focusing on helping workplaces become more inclusive. And my philosophy really is, how can you change as workplaces to become more inclusive? Obviously, neurodivergent people can adapt and develop in the world and, and, and they should get that support, but so much I saw was always coming up, like wording in recruitment or like I said, managers not having understanding. So after I left the National Autistic Society, I set up Adjust about eight years ago now. We focus on training employers, still that same philosophy. We do a lot of awareness through a lot of lunch and learns. We do a lot of training with recruitment teams and managers. And I'm also the author of a book called The Pocket Guide to Neurodiversity, which talking about accidents, that happened by accident. I was delivering a session one day to a publishers and they said, this would be a great book. And I, and I said, okay, brilliant. And then I didn't do anything for a year. And in that year, 
because I'd struggled so much with the book, I also got diagnosed with ADHD myself. And that was an interesting journey because I had to ask for help and actually I spent most of my life helping others. So it was, that was interesting. And, and that sort of brought me to you today, really. When I talk about neurodiversity, I talk about it as a recognition, a celebration, acceptance that we all think differently. And then within that, some people think more differently to others, which is the term sort of neurodivergent, diverging from the, the majority. And I always compare it to like nature. So in, in nature, in, in ecosystems, you've got different plants and different animals, different weather climates, and you've got the bees and you've got the trees and the, the bees don't say to the trees, what are you lot doing just standing around all day? You're not doing anything. And the trees don't say to the bees, but you're not achieving anything. You just go to each plant for three seconds and move on. They all exist in harmony. And, and I believe the human species is like that, that within our brains, we're all designed to not be thinking the same. And actually, if we all thought in the same way, I don't think we'd be here as a species. And if we eradicated one type of neurotype, like, like when I first did my volunteering around the, the idea of curing, the horrible idea, like the world wouldn't be what it was without autistic people. So, so neurodiversity to me is the celebration that we all think differently. And then under that umbrella to workplaces and schools and, and no culture really celebrating these different types of minds, like autistic minds, ADHD minds, dyslexic minds, dyspraxic minds. And there's always an overlap between a lot of those neurotypes. But I've also found throughout my career, there's a big overlap with mental health conditions as well because a lot of people, especially a lot of autistic people, are perhaps growing up in a world that doesn't understand them. So that's going to lead to high anxiety. My, you know, I, I always say this, I'm not in charge of neurodiversity, but my clear dividing line for me is with neurodiversity and the neurodivergent neurotypes, that is the way your brain is wired. And that is, we need to play to those strengths. With the mental health conversation, I, I personally believe they're things that we want to help people alleviate. Like we want to help alleviate your anxiety we don't alleviate your autism. So for me, the line is around like, if, yeah, if people are depressed or anxious or have low self-esteem, which you often see correlates quite closely with the neurodivergent profiles there, they're the things that we wanna, wanna help with. And we can't really pull people apart, but you know, some autistic people aren't able to access mental health services because mental health services say you're autistic. And it's very discriminatory. So yeah, for me, the neurotypes are who we are and how our brain works. And the mental health conversation is a little bit more about, well, how can we alleviate that? And say for an autistic person, their anxiety is going to be lower, the clearer you communicate with them. So it does go hand in hand because the more you understand autism, the more you're going to alleviate anxiety as a knock-on effect. I got into neurodiversity because through my work at the National Autistic Society, about 50% of people I work with had ADHD, whether diagnosed or not. And I always try to make the, the topic as simple as possible. So especially when I train managers and the chapters in my book are around this. So I, I acknowledge the um, neurotypes, but then I, then I talk about the areas that I see that overlap with all of the neurodivergent profiles. And they can be things around processing or working memory, communication styles, unwritten rules, emotions, and things around problem solving. So sometimes when I talk to managers, especially I'm, I'm saying, don't even worry what the label is because there's such, there's such overlap. And you might be working with someone who predominantly thinks they've got ADHD, and they would have ADHD, but maybe they're undiagnosed autism. So if you're just having ADHD training, you're not covering the other stuff. So for me, I always talk about the overlap. I say, I would love to one day go beyond even the labels 
and just look at those different areas of, of strengths and difficulties. We know now that lots of people in their adulthood are, you know, getting diagnosed with uh, all they're going through the process of discovering their own neurodiversity, which they, you know, probably they had always um, as, as children and probably really, you know, did find things difficult. It's really interesting that what this is kind of like this explosion is happening in terms of people being diagnosed. And I think one thing that, you know, people aren't aware of maybe is what they're going through and that self-awareness. And so it might be very difficult to deal with that in, in work situations as well, um, when you're in the workplace, if you don't know what's going on with yourself. So are there any sort of signs or anything that sort of people can do to kind of help themselves, do you think, when it comes to their feeling there's something not quite right or there's something quite they're struggling with some stuff like is there anything they can do for themselves i think at the moment it is like becoming a lot more well known isn't it perhaps 10 years ago 20 years ago it might have been harder for people and the event i was at the other night there was an autistic person on the panel who said you know she just thought she was broken as a person or there was something wrong with her so it's great there's so much more information out there now so yeah i advise people to to look into look into it themselves research around it um, the screening tools but one thing you know my philosophy turning it around is I always want workplaces to create that psychological safety where people can can explore it within their workplaces and some workplaces these days not that they have to but some are, are, are providing people with access to diagnosis I really passionately believe the more we speak about it the more it's on people's radars so I often find a lot of people come to my training who are sort of um, I was going to invent the term neuro-curious and they're, they're interested in it and they come along and then they leave and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm certainly got ADHD because I talk about it so practically, like not from the diagnostic manual. So I would love more workplaces to be creating that space, that opportunity where if people feel like they could be neurodivergent, that the workplace can support them with it. Because I've seen stats which say 20% of the workforce could be neurodivergent. Doesn't mean diagnosed, but up to. So that's one in five of your employees. So. We, we need to be supporting this group and and another group connected to that very closely as parents because a lot of the people in the workplace that support my work are often parents and neurodivergent children and then sometimes dealing with that in terms of the school system is a whole other job for them so i think this is something workplaces really need to take seriously and create that those resources and that space and one of the best things i see is you know like neurodiversity employee groups and if people feel like they could identify with that group, go along to your groups. You're not going to have to wave a, a diagnostic piece of paperwork. They're very welcoming. And I think just, just research it more and really soak it up. And, and yeah, and I think workplaces have that responsibility to provide that space. The idea of Adjust was to offer very clear, practical, positive training around neurodiversity to employers. Especially clear and practical, because I'd worked in this sort of sector for, for all my my working life and I would go to conferences around autism and neurodiversity and stuff and I wouldn't understand things and I've worked in the sector and I live and breathe it so I, I sometimes you know one of my popular things that we do is our lunch and learn if I've got 50 minutes to get across these key important points I want to make it as simple as possible demystify it make it very very relatable so that was a real key motivator for me because I felt like sometimes in our sector we can overcomplicate it and and I could have offline a very complicated conversation with you about this, but I like to make it very clear and, and accessible to everybody, which is really important. So, and I also developed Adjust to just really focus on three or four main themes, which is the areas that I saw the biggest barriers. So recruiters, so we do training for recruiters, 
we do things like recruitment clinics where organizations can give me like their interview questions and we can say this would be hard for a neurodivergent person we do manager training um, and we do something that's quite popular at the moment called manager coaching so i'll coach managers that are managing neurodivergent employees and this goes back to my philosophy where i saw actually it's the workplace that needs the support and the change not just the autistic person or neurodivergent person managers will come to me and they'll be like i just don't know what to do am i saying the right thing well i've tried this i've tried that and in a one-to-one safe space with me i think by the time they leave it i think they feel a lot more confident in the area and then we do that with hr as well i think when i set up one of my friends said that is so niche but yes it is and when we set up in 2016 no one really knew what neurodiversity was but i don't know if you saw but the cipd did a a great sort of neurodiversity like campaign about 2018 and and that was a real watershed moment for, for me in terms of then after that, a lot more employers were engaging in the topic. I suppose where workplaces get the best returns for my work is where they, they really like sort of buy into the whole philosophy. And um, I have a slide where I say like, we need to be looking at recruiters, managers, culture, physical space, employee support, you know, it's all fits together. It, it's not a journey, it's a menu. So you pick it and put it together, but where workplace is done best is where they sort of engage with all of that, not just one bit. Because I used to see like workplaces would train managers, but then the autistic person's colleagues wouldn't understand autism. So that's not gonna work, is it? So I see it best where like everybody's involved. So that holistic approach basically. And I suppose my top three tips for for managers or workplaces is things around like clear communication. The clearer we are in our communication, the better it is for everybody. But so often, especially in polite British society, we are told not to be polite or we're taught not to be polite and we never say what we mean. We use a lot of phrases which we don't really mean. We have a lot of unwritten rules. There's a chapter in my book on unwritten rules where things we'll judge people on that they do, but we won't tell them we judge them. So clear communication around everything. You know, I've come across situations where like someone's been shown around the workplace at the start, an autistic person might be shown around and said, you could, yeah, you can use anything in the kitchen. And then the next day they're at the desk eating someone's sandwich and you know what drama that causes and the autistic person might say but i was told i could eat anything in the fridge or the kitchen and and then i often find managers then don't have the confidence to say clearly this is that situation so you don't eat other people's sandwiches what i mean is you can use the tea coffee and sugar in the kitchen and the manager sometimes say to me oh isn't that patronizing but i say no i've seen so many autistic people especially discriminated against because of that kind of stuff it, it is good in a one-to-one setting to address it. So I think clear communication is always my number one. And how does that not benefit all of us? And often when I talk about unwritten rules and British culture, anybody that's not been brought up in British culture will always like laugh and, and say, yeah, like you guys are so polite. You never say what you mean. But I would love it if you were just a bit more direct and clear. So um, I've always found that really interesting. So clear communication. If someone ever said to me, what's your tip on being inclusive? I would say it's given the same information, but in different ways. So by that, I mean, as a workplace, if you're putting out your comms always on the internet on lengthy, lengthy documents, like I've got ADHD, I'm not reading it. If you put out a 40 second video on your update, I will, I will look at it. So giving the same information, but in different ways, I think is the most inclusive thing you can do. And, and you could even just, it's so easy just to start with doing everything in two ways. It's not that hard. And, and I suppose my third thing is have flexibility in systems. So many workplaces will say, oh yeah, we, we want to be neuroinclusive, but to get that, you have to fill in this form. 
It's like, well, that might not work for some people. Like, can I just call you? I will never fill in any forms. I've missed out so much in my life because I don't fill in any form. <laughs> I remember like I didn't sign up to a pension because there was a form I had to fill in, so I just didn't do it. But if I could have rung up someone in HR or gone and sat in a room for half an hour and someone filled in the form with me, I would have got it done. So just some flexibility in your systems and you can't say you're neuro-inclusive as a workplace, but say, oh, but you've got to do it like this. So yeah, clear communication, give the same information, but in different ways and have flexibility in your systems. They're, they're the things that I think will make the world very neuro-inclusive. There was a stat recently which showed like 7,000 people were diagnosed in the UK autistic and 5,000 were men or boys, 2,000 were women or girls, and 97% were white. So like, that's a whole other conversation, neurodiversity and race, maybe that's another podcast, but it's something that, if we're talking about psychological safety for everyone, is there psychological safety outside of like being a white male if you're, if you're neurodivergent as well? But I think one of the things workplaces can do is embrace neurodiversity very positively. I think senior leaders talking about it, either their own experiences, if they wanted to share it. I've seen senior leaders talk about their own ADHD or their children, or that they just fully support and are an advocate of the, of the topic. Talking about it positively, moving away from talking about it in terms of like, oh, this person with autism suffers, you know, like and talking about using their language a lot of the autistic community prefer. Um, which would be autistic person or person with autism and, and they certainly don't suffer from it. They, they often say they suffer from other people. But uh, uh, so it's talking about it positively, having those role models um, that are celebrated. You know, when workplaces say bring your authentic self to work, there's two sides of that. One is, I don't know if I want to. And separately, when we say that to autistic people, especially, are we setting them up for failure where we say bring your authentic self and then as workplaces we're not ready for authentic autistic people we're supposed to really promote that authentic self in the workplace but like what does it really mean underneath the, the heading and and uh, I've often seen a, a lot of autistic people discriminated against once they've been told they can be so if we're creating psychological safety around it then we need everyone to have the awareness of what that could look like and for me, as a white male in Britain, like one of my passions is, is for instance, like football. I would always be allowed to talk about that in the workplace. But I was speaking to an autistic person yesterday who said their passion, you know, it, it might be like different leaves on trees and no one really wants to talk to them about that. So if they go on about that all day, that they've been told, bring your authentic self to work, but actually no one wants to talk to them. So it's really interesting. It's a really interesting area, I think, which we're just sort of accepting as a, as a, as a term. And then I'd like to explore it further. I was at this event the other night, the law event, and there were five neurodivergent people on the panel. And, and I was looking at them thinking like they're such pioneers because even 10 years ago, if you'd have gone to a neurodiversity event in the workplace, it would have been like specialists, external specialists talking about it. It was amazing for me to see that the conversations moved on to these these individuals. And I don't want to say brave because I don't really like that term, but it, you know, it, it's amazing that they're putting themselves forward. And I'm seeing that sort of the first generation doing that now. And yeah, where are we going to be in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? It's, it's going to be incredible, isn't it? Thank you for joining this week's episode, The Starting Point for Leaders, Neurodiversity in the Workplace. And please do check out Adjust and the great work they're doing in this space. I look forward to seeing you next week.